Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I imagine a lot of people are tuning in today for the first time because of my guest, Senator Al Franken from Minnesota. Yeah, Al Franken, the hilarious Al Franken and the very decent and uh, engaged and active senator. Democratic Senator from the state of Minnesota, Mr. Al Franken, Senator Al Franken. I talked to him in D.C., and I know a lot of you are tuning in because it's nice to have a conversation. I don't have a lot of uh, specifically political conversations here on the show. I did talk to a president, uh, President Obama, but this is really the first um, senator, I think. This is the first sitting senator I've had on. I, I, he's the first senator I've had on at all, really, and uh and I'm excited about it because Al has a new book out and uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't inherently or exclusively mean we talk about politics only because Al's book um, was about it's a memoir. It's it's a memoir. The book is a memoir and it's called uh, Al Franken Giant of the Senate. And you can get it now wherever you get books. But, you know, I like Al, and I've known Al a long time uh, in some degree. We were at Air America together. But also as a kid, I was a huge fan of Al on SNL. And uh, anytime I saw him appear anywhere, I thought he was uh, hilarious. He is hilarious. He, I, I wait for him to be funny. I look at him and I want, and I just wait for him to be funny. And I remember when, uh, when he became a senator, I was like, oh boy. Uh, now he's not going to be funny anymore. And he's so specifically funny. And this book, uh, Giant of the Senate, is funny. And it, it it goes through the full arc. And I talk to Al about a lot of different things. But I talk about his life. And I talk about his his evolution uh, in comedy. I didn't realize he started as a stand-up. I didn't know he had uh, time at the comedy store. I didn't know about the early SNL from his point of view. And how he evolved out of that into public service is is all in the book but he doesn't give short shrift to his comedy career and what that implied uh, at the time he was in it and also once he became a candidate for senate and then once he became a senator it threads through it all his his comedy career is important and does become uh for for times a, a liability but he de- he doesn't uh he doesn't dismiss it and he's very proud of it and he should be because he's a a brilliant comedic mind but it's also important to have Al there to have Al in the Senate at this juncture in history 
is very important because he's a decent guy and uh, he he believes in American decency and he believes in helping Americans in a real way, in a practical way. And he talks about that. And I'll tell you, this book, if you read the book, uh, it, it's almost a primer for how to get into politics. And, I, and I, it's something I think we should all do I, I, at, at whatever level we can. And I believe me. I, I'm guilty of being disengaged, lazy, even apathetic at times, uh, but I do what I can. So be, before I, I get too far into my rambling, because I, I do want to get to Al, because I know people are here to listen to Al, because this is a nice, rare, sort of hour-long chat with Al, but I'm going to be doing it again. I'm going to be interviewing Al in front of a live audience tomorrow, June 2nd, at the Book Expo in New York City at the Javits Center. The following day, me and Brendan McDonald will be participating in the Book Con in the same place, the Javits Center, doing our shtick about our book. So if you're in New York, come to either or both of those events. So, folks, I, I don't uh, get into the fray much of the politics, but I'll tell you, man, you know, there's some real heroes out there. There's some real heroes out there, and some of them are giving their lives to maintain decency and and law and order to some degree, and the pursuit of truth and democracy. You know, a reporter gets beaten up, and it's celebrated by certain people. You know, that's not that's not American. There's there's a there's a type of belligerent, immoral, violent, willfully ignorant proudly dumb strain of behavior going on now that's not it's not political it's not american it's fucking crude and it's just dangerous why are you proud of that so there are some unsung heroes the journalists right now are are taking up a lot a lot of their lives and energy to provide a check you know on the government that needs to be there because we don't have a lot of outlets. There's got to be checks and balances. And, you know, to beat up on real journalists who are just looking for truth. It's weird, man. This presidency is probably the most transparent presidency, certainly in my life, just by virtue of journalists doing their job. This administration does not want it to be transparent. And it's transparent. We can see right into it. And I do want to say, you know, say a few words about these people that have stepped into the fray to protect other Americans from hate and violence. You know, two people died in, uh, in Portland doing the right thing. One guy was injured doing the right thing, protecting another American from a lunatic who was radicalized by white nationalists, American white nationalists. We've got to get each other's backs because, uh, you know, those who believe in America, in the idea of tolerance and the idea of mercy, the idea of charity, the idea of, uh, of everybody having a, a shot, you know, at, at living a free life and their dream of, of diversity, of the things that make America interesting and great and strong. Those of us who believe that, you know, are at odds with the belligerent, immoral, violent, willfully ignorant proudly dumb anti-american forces that just want to steamroll the the evolution and progress of democracy so you got you might have to get dirty you might have to step in you might have to speak up you should but the great thing about talking to al is uh you know he does that and he does it uh from the united states senate 
We all have a part. Got to play a little part, just a little bit. So after reading Al's book, I laughed. I cried. I grew with him as he became a uh, civil servant, a senator who uh, is deeply rooted and uh, believes in helping and working with uh, the people of uh, this country in Minnesota, his state, uh, in helping uh, people that have less or do not get the services uh, needed in, in ways, the poor, the, the, uh, the disenfranchised. He does, he does all the things that uh, a decent, uh, progressive, democratic, uh, or anybody, American, should do. He works towards those things. And obviously now uh, the, uh, the government is tilted in one direction. It's highly polarized, so he's got his work cut out for him. But the interesting thing about Al is that, you know, he's got endurance, he's got persistence, and he's got drive. And he's one of the most active members uh, right now in the Democratic side of the Senate in terms of uh, seeing him speak up and and confront, like to watch him deal with uh, question uh, Jeff Sessions, Senator Sessions during his uh, confirmation hearing uh, was a a profound and uh, amazing thing that led to uh, the ultimate recusal uh, of Sessions in this um, investigation into the administration's collusion with Russia. So, you know, government is exciting. And it is challenging and you got to be cut out for it and you got to stay in it and you got to believe in it. And Al Franken does. And uh, I'm proud of him. I'm proud he's a, a U.S. senator. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to see somebody who evolved out of show business and into, uh, you know, finding his heart in uh, public service. And it was great to talk to him. This is me and Al Franken. Uh, his book is called uh, Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. And... Um, and it was uh, it was great. I was able to sit with him at his chief of staff's house in D.C. And uh, we had about an hour and then he had to get out and do some things. Senator things. So this is uh, this is me and Al. Senator. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Al. Let me just get a like the mother yeah. pillow behind me. Sure. Cause I'm very I I need a pillow. Thank you, young man. See, I still do voices. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm a senator. Funny Al is back. Yes. Oh, good. After Five and a half years of uh, not being funny in the Senate. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Senator Franken. Mm-hmm. I uh, I didn't quite finish the book. I, I'm about twenty okay. pages shy now. That's okay. But but uh, at the end, is there some 
practical solution to all the world's problems that can be enacted quickly? It's it's actually on the last page. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would be there. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. God. Thank God it's all going to work paragraph. out. It's all going to work out. I wanted to stay. I don't know if I ever told you the story, but I'm going to tell you the story. Sure. When I was a kid, there was uh, I went to a camp with a kid who's... Uh, whose father worked at NBC. So I must have been 14 or 15. And okay. he was gonna, I was a big fan of SNL. I wanted to meet John Belushi. Uh-huh. So he set up uh, my, my grandma Goldie from New Jersey. I flew into, I was visiting her, and she took me to NBC. Okay, Goldie. And me and Goldie, were, we went up to 30 Rock. We went up, we we're going to meet John Belushi. We go to the waiting area, and we're waiting. And uh, some guy comes out with a big Jufro in glasses. It's you. Yeah. And you're kind of giggling a little bit. I don't know what happened just beyond the door that you came out of. Sure. But uh, you're like... Yeah. We were at a comedy show. Uh, right. Yeah, so it could have been... <laughs> could have been something. Someone said something funny. Right, yeah. right. I, I wasn't implying anything. <laughs> but you said, yeah, John's not... He can't, he can't come out. So, oh, I was sent in to yeah, tell you, you that? Was, oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. And you're 14? Yeah, something like that. Al, tell the 14-year-old kid <laughs> that Belushi's not... What year is this, you know? Well, it must have been, what, 77? Uh, okay. Well, Does that make could, sense? Sure. You know, he he was moody. Oh, really? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like in and out, cranky? Uh, he could get very cranky. I mean, he, you know, 77, I'm sure by then he was doing too many drugs. Right, and, right. And that he was kind of this moody Albanian anyway. <laughs> yeah. But once he, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, people who are addicted to drugs can get extra moody sure when they don't have their drugs or they or, haven't slept or, or something they, yeah and yeah. i'm uh, familiar with that i remember actually once uh i think it was probably the next year kate jackson i think it was her hosting I, it doesn't matter who was hosting but he was really in bad shape yeah and in dress rehearsal jim downey and i had written a piece and john just was terrible in it and didn't know his lines. <laughs> right. So uh, I said to Downey, between dress and air, let's go to John's dressing room and just run the lines with him. And Jim kind of was reticent to do it because <laughs> uh, she was not in a good mood. But I go in there and I go, John, I noticed that you were unfamiliar with the lines and the, the sketch. And uh, he just said, get out of here. And he put his fist up. And and uh, Jim looked at me, and I went, he's not, you know, I just I just looked at him and said, he's not going to hit us. He's just, he doesn't do that. He does not going to do it. <laughs> so I said, I, uh, John, I'm going to read, I'll just read the lines to you. So when you say them on the air, they'll seem familiar to you. Well, that's when the fist went up, actually. <laughs> and yeah. so that's what we did. We just kept running the lines, but he wouldn't he run wouldn't the engage, lines. Right. But, but but Downey and I would just did the sketch for him <laughs> so that when we were there on the air, it would sound familiar to him. And did it? I got better. It was better. I think we had done ex our job. So like, I, I didn't know a lot of things. You know, I'm, I do comedy and uh you know i work i, I know at, i work at the comedy store and i yeah. saw franken and davis on the wall at the comedy store i never really I, I knew you must have been there at some time but i didn't know the whole arc of of your comedic career but like before i start that like you grew up in in minnesota right yeah, yeah. 
Now, your father, he what was his business? Well, he was a printing salesman for the most of the rest of his career. He started working when he was 16 because his dad died. And he never, he didn't graduate high school, so he never had a career uh, as such. Uh, but we moved to Minnesota when I was four years old because, uh, and we moved to little town Albert Lee, Minnesota, in right. southern Minnesota. Uh, to open a quilting factory. And my grandfather, my mom's dad, had a quilting factory. And we moved to Albert Lee to open a quilting factory, and it failed. And a quilting factory makes quilted fabric, right. which is... Uh, For any use. Any use. Yeah. It lines, you can make bedspreads out sure, of it. Yeah. <laughs> you can lines, uh, winter coats was mainly what it was used for in those days. And the factory failed after two years. And then... We're in this little thing. We moved up to St. Louis Park, Minnesota, the Jewish suburb, sort of. It's twenty five percent Jews, but in you Minnesota, that's no. Uh, we're I'm very Jewish, but I'm not right. Uh, I'm not devout, right? But uh, this was called St. Jewish Park by okay. delightful people yeah, in Minnesota, like nice people of Minnesota. Well, no, we called it that ourselves. Sure. But this is twenty five percent Jewish. Uh, the town, uh, the suburb, the suburb, and. That in Minnesota is a shtetl. That right. is very Jewish. So we moved up there. But I, when I was like, I don't know, my teens or something, when I finally thought about it, I said, Dad, why did we move? To, uh, why Albert Lee? Yeah. Why Albert Lee? And he said, well, your grandfather. My, my dad was a New Yorker and also had inhaled a pipe throughout his yeah. entire adult life. Your grandfather uh, wanted to... Uh, start a, a uh, open a f factory in the Midwest, and the railroad went through Albert Lee. And I said, "Why? Okay, why did it fail? It went through Albert Lee, but it wouldn't stop." <laughs> and Dad was funny. He was a terrible businessman. <laughs> he didn't know what he, you know. And then he became a printing salesman, and he was the sweetest guy. You know, it's funny. I listened to Dana and to uh, I've, I've heard that one and Springsteen. And I know that you had a difficult uh, relationship with your father, yeah. and Dana, of course, did. They, yeah, that was and, something. And Springsteen yeah. did. Yeah. And I'm just, my dad was the sweetest guy. You're lucky. And he was very funny. I'm right. very lucky. Yeah, and that's why I think that you're probably a sweet, more grounded fellow. I, I, I like to think so. I really wanted to be a dad be, always because my dad was such a great dad. Yeah, I and think, you don't, and you don't have the, uh, the absent dad, either emotionally or physically, chip on your shoulder. I don't have, certainly don't have that chip. Yeah. No. Now, but it's funny <laughs> I don't about know what the. what chip I have, but I don't have that, that one. And my dad was such a sweetheart. It's funny because about that train thing, because you actually worked on legislation later in life around the, uh, on the yeah, agricultural Yeah, well, there's something bill. called uh, cap, uh, captive shipping. Yeah. Which is, the railroads enjoy kind of a monopoly in this country. Yeah. Many do. Yeah. And uh, so they kind of can not ship or not ship your stuff. And right. this is really affects. You got to pay them to stop. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, if you want to put a complaint in to the Surface Transportation Board, yeah. this is who uh, oversees the railroads. It used to be like uh, a huge amount of money. It's like $25,000. And uh, David Vitter, uh, senator from uh, Louisiana, who I, he and I never saw eye to eye on anything. We worked on this thing to get down to three hundred dollars. So you, you did could it. File a complaint for three hundred bucks. So if your grandfather had opened a business after you fixed it, 
we might have been able to file a complaint. Yeah. Get, and I might have grown up in Albert Lee. That's right. And get those uh, quilts out to the world. Yeah, quilting. Quilting. Quilting fabric. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I got to get this stuff right. Um, when Sputnik went up, uh, my parents, everyone was petrified. Now, yeah. You're too young for this, but... Uh, when Sputnik went up, the Russians now were ahead of us in space and had nuclear weapons. Right. And so everyone was petrified. My parents marched us into our living room, sat us down, and said, you boys are going to study math and science so we can beat the Soviets. I thought that was a lot of pressure to put on a six-year-old, <laughs> um, and which I was. Uh, but And my brother was 11. But we, we were very obedient sons, and so we studied math and science, and both of us were very good at it. And he got into MIT. He was the first in our family to go to college. And he actually graduated with a degree in physics. But he was disgusted by the Vietnam War and saw that a lot of what MIT did with its physics was yeah. make stuff to kill people. And so he became an anti-war activist and was Gene McCarthy's um, uh, photographer. Oh, that he, so he traveled with him and did the whole thing? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, I went to, when I was a junior in high school, I went to Milwaukee to watch him, uh, watch McCarthy. And, and that's when I saw Nixon on that trip. And LBJ dropped out during that trip. Really? Yeah. It so, was a Wisconsin primary during the Wisconsin and primary. And you were in high school? Yeah. Were you excited about politics? Yeah. You were. Yeah. And well, I was, you know, I was very against the Vietnam War. Right. Um, what got us is uh, what got me interested in politics was the civil rights movement. Right. And uh, we watched the news uh, every evening. It was either Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley. Uh, we, sat, we sat in front of the TV with tray tables and, uh, and ate dinner. As a family. As a family. And my mom was a great cook. We didn't have TV dinners. We mm -hmm. had really good dinners, but we watched the news. And when the civil rights movement was happening and uh, Southern sheriffs would, at demonstrations put billy clubs and fire hoses and uh, dogs on demonstrators, my dad would point to the TV and say, no Jew can be for that. No Jew can be for that. And that was a... That was a very big lesson, which is politics is about justice. My dad had been a Jacob Javits Republican, a uh, liberal Republican. There used to be such a thing. And <clears throat> he switched to being a Democrat in 1964 because Barry Goldwater was the nominee and he had voted against the Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Movement was the first thing that got me really engaged in politics. The family deciding Factor. Well, it was my my mom had been a Democrat, so, uh -huh. so it was my dad. So at the point when you like as the '60s go on and and things get very heated and polarized in the country, and young people are, you know, protesting and everything yeah. else. When you initially started doing comedy, did you have heroes that were fighting the power, or was it part of the intention that you thought this was the best way to do this? Uh, no, we just like comedy and, yeah. and we like satire. And so Tom and I, this Tom Davis and yeah. I met in high school and we started doing an act and, uh, we did a lot of Nixon. We just thought Nixon was hilarious. And so we would do so much Nixon that if Nixon was talking to Kissinger, Tom was Nixon. Yeah. If Nixon was talking to David Eisenhower, his son, his son-in-law, 
uh, I'd be Nixon. Yeah. Because Tom was better. Yeah. He, it just made sense. So both of us did Nixon <laughs> in her act, yeah. which was stupid if you think about it, but somehow it worked. And you started when you were in high school, the two of you. Yeah. We started in, in chapel. Yeah. Oh, really? Here's the deal. That's uh, a prep school. Yeah. Uh, I went to public school through uh, the end of junior high. My brother goes to MIT. So my parents, who think education is everything, figure that now he's gone to college. He's the expert on education. Yeah. So my brother, unbeknownst to me, calls my parents, calls my dad and says, uh, Alan should go to Harvard, not MIT. Yeah. Because everybody is a wonk and a nerd here. But the wonks and nerds who are best prepared here uh, went to pri- private school. They're much they're better prepared. So I didn't hear the, I didn't know about this conversation until years later. But my dad comes to me a, a little while later and goes, Alan, you're, you're going to take a test uh, for a school for smart kids. <laughs> and I go, okay, smart kids, that sounds good. So, um, or that sounds okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I go to this uh, campus there and take this test. It's a beautiful campus. And a few weeks later, Alan, you, you passed the test for the small school for smart kids. So I go, okay. And, and I've gone, you know, I've been from first grade on with this group of kids in public school yeah. and I kind of didn't like the idea but again obedient son so then about a week before uh, I go to the school I th- they have an ambassador show me around yeah. and I don't want to say who the kid is he was from uh, kind of one of the old families in Minneapolis but he was not a smart kid yeah <laughs> <laughs> He was kind of a mouth breather. And so... uh, So you knew the system was real. So already I'm going, huh. And then he tells me, uh, you know, you have to wear a coat and tie. Yeah. I go like, wow, that's weird. Okay, I could do that. Uh, You have to play a sport. Okay, I can do that. You know, they have soccer. Yeah, well, okay, I'll do that. Um, You, uh, we have chapel in the morning. Chapel. Yeah. Chapel, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was a school founded in like 1901 for Protestant boys. Yeah. So, but I didn't hear, know the boys part until he said, oh, they're, you know, that we have a sister school. There are no girls. Yeah. And I go, what? There are no girls. So I go down to the parking lot and my dad goes, so how did you like it? And I go like, I'm not going. I'm not going here. And he goes, well, why not? There are no girls, dad. And he goes, oh, <laughs> Well, we've paid the deposit. <laughs> and so I go to the damn school because we had paid the deposit. And so I go there and uh, so I'm in chapel yeah. <laughs> and there are all these Protestant hymns. Yeah. A mighty fortress is our God. And then and onward Christians. And and I don't sing them because yeah. I'm Jewish. And, uh, and so, you probably didn't know them. Oh, that you have a little oh, yeah. hymnal and you can figure them out. So I'm just not, but this is a weekend and we get our first test back from math. And yeah. our math teacher had given us sort of a, just a test to see how, where we were. Yeah. I was really good at math and science because uh, the intention still was to beat the Soviets. Yeah. And uh, I got the top score in the, in the class at the school for smart kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so he says, Mr. Franken, would you stay after class? 
And I go, uh, sure. Uh, and I'm thinking he's going to say, like, it's great to have another math mind here yeah. or something like that. But he says to me instead, after everyone's left, I notice you don't sing the hymns. And I go, oh, boy. Yeah. And I say, well, uh, yeah, I'm Jewish. And I feel like, you know, maybe it'd be like sacrilegious. Yeah. You know, I just was trying to think of anything. Yeah. And he says, uh-huh, um, you want to go to a good college, don't you? And I went, wow. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I do. And uh, your math grades will really be important for that, won't they? And I go, yeah. I'd sing the hymns. He said, so like the next day in chapel, I'm just going, onward, Christian souls. I don't really care. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I kind of like yeah, they're fun. those hymns. Sure. And, and um, here's what chapel was. Yeah. Chapel was the beginning of my comedy career because at the end of chapel, there'd be announcements. And Tom Davis did an announcement with some other students you knew him before though right no i did you not met know him, him at chapel this is the first, I, yeah. I saw him in chapel yeah. he was hilarious yeah and so after chapel he's a year younger than me and after chapel i went up to him and i went you were really funny and uh he said you know tell me about the announcements and how you do so what ended up was that's when franklin and davis was born and we just did chapel announcements so chapel was like the best thing that ever happened to me <laughs> that was the beginning and tom and i started doing um you know started doing every announcement people wanted us to do announcements so as a team just, thing as a team and we did every you know every influence whether it was Laurel and Hardy or Johnny Carson or whatever, we just yeah. didn't. We did parodies of things. I remember we did like, if you don't go to homecoming, you'll sp oh, if you don't go to homecoming, you'll spend a night in the box, and that was Cool Hand Luke or something like that. I was uh, the hit <laughs> of the Struther Martin. That was that was a bad Struther Martin. Struther Martin hosted the damn show, you know. Did he? Yeah. He was uh, he's a uh, he was amazing actually. It, it's such a he unique. He was great. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. what like first or second year something like that yeah oh, wild man I think he was our first host actually to die oh I, I mean it's very weird when you do a show yeah well, I guess it isn't so weird when you do a show it's weird when you're on this planet Earth right that people die yeah <laughs> when you're old enough to know people who died so oh so oh, Strother was the first to die when the show was still on yeah, and then, yeah. oh wow yeah. Um, so when, so when do you start, like you, you, you work with Davis obviously during the summer and stuff. And when, when does it become a thing that you can make money at? When do you start working in we clubs? We literally and made money fairly soon. We worked at this place called the Brave New Workshop. Yeah. Was that like a hippie coffee house kind of? A little, sort of that. Not so hippie. Uh, very Minneapolis yeah. in, at the time. And just a, uh. Just it, it was an improv-based comedy club. It was like Third City. It was like Second City was Second City because they weren't New York. But this is 1970? This is 68, 69 is when right. we started going there. While we were in high school, we started going there. Right. And they would do a show, and then they'd do an improv set, just like at Second City. Yeah. And they were actually trained by Del Close, who trained the Second City right. people. The, the Grand the, Wizard of Improv. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so... Tom and I just kept going to the improv sets, which were free, so we could go there. And we started to get to know 
the guys and they had the equivalent of an open mic night yeah and they would let you get up on stage and we met dudley riggs who had started the place uh and dudley uh watched us on a monday night and said you guys are great and we started doing shows there like two-man shows and you do because he had two then he suddenly had two theaters right and you're doing scripted bits yeah you had like what three or four bits you go back and forth. Yeah, the, on open mic night, we did, uh, uh, I remember we did our World War Three newscast, which right, was yeah. tragedy, death, catastrophe, highlight tonight's news after this message. Yeah. Well, the stock market closed today for good. And now with the weather, Barney, you know, new right, house. Yeah. <laughs> Barney, well, temperature's up to 10,000 degrees, uh, cooling off tomorrow to uh, a low of 3,000. <laughs> Don't that, get at those umbrellas yet. You know, I mean, it was... Um, <laughs> and it killed. It killed. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was a local news show. And that was actually part of the package that we submitted to SNL later. Later in, I guess, in 75. So once you start working, how do you get to L.A.? We, what, what makes you We decide? hitchhiked to L.A. You did. We hitchhiked from Minneapolis to L.A. Kids, don't do that. You were 18, 19? Yeah, no, it was all, we were older. I was in college by then. I think it was my, before my senior year of college. And uh, we were doing shows during the summer at Dudley's. Yeah. And uh, getting paid. And I was also working on, on the street crew um, for the uh, city, uh, my suburb, St. Jewish Park, St. Louis yeah. Park. Yeah. And, and uh, but then we decided, uh, Pat Proft, uh, a, a really, really funny writer. He wrote uh, the Police Academies. He wrote um, one of the writers of the Naked Guns. Yeah. Really, really funny guy. Joke guy. A joke guy. Yeah. And he had been starting to do stand-up at the comedy store, and he said, why don't you guys come out? And so we actually had a friend who was going to Des Moines. So we got a ride to Des Moines, and <laughs> yeah. then we stuck our thumbs out. And got a ride. We got a, a ride right to Sacramento. All the way. All the way to Sacramento. In a truck and with a guy, with a it family? It was a guy. No, it was one guy who yeah. figured he needed some help because yeah. he wanted to go straight through. And I remember he had a hole in the um, under in the floorboards. Oh, I thought you were going to say his throat. No, no, no. Okay. no. <laughs> Well, that's horrible. Uh, that's like, where you went right away. You know, the guys just <laughs> smoke through the hole in their throat. You know? Yeah. Get you guys. Yeah. That thing. And so, uh, but he had a hole in the floorboards on the passenger side. Right. And uh, I remember him sleeping in the back and Tom insisting on driving while we were going over the mountains and it was freezing. Right. <laughs> and I was getting all this... <laughs> Really cold. Anyway, that was going out to the comedy store. And then it took us quite a while to get from Sacramento to L.A. Right. But then we, we uh, slept on a couple couches at, at Pat's, and we went up and did the comedy store. And for that Mitzi. Was, it was actually for Sammy. So this was like 72, 71? So yeah, before yeah, it was she like took 72 over. 72 or right. something. So it was before it was she for, took over the store. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and who was there? Like, what was going on there? When you got there, did you see any of... I can't remember. I think Charlie Fleischer had maybe right. started. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just, I'm trying to remember. Then, after I, I went back. Pre-Mitzi store. That's wild. Pre-Mitzi. You know, that was only just a few days. Uh -huh. You know, just a, a few days. And uh, enough so that we kind of established ourselves on the 
you know, as people, oh, there's this team, Franklin and Davis, uh, among comedy people. Yeah. So then we went out to Harvard for my last year. Tom came out for the for the spring. To and, Boston? To Boston, stayed in my room, and we'd go down on weekends to the improv. Mm-hmm. And we worked the improv, and Bud Friedman was there. And that was with, like, Freddie Prinze, The Untouchables. Oh, and right, yeah. oh, Jay Leno would come down. Right, Jay right. Leno came down from uh, from Boston, actually, when, when we did, too. And Kaufman, he saw Andy Kaufman there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kaufman was killing. And then, after college, boom, back out to the comedy store. And then we were for the Sammy Mitzi transition. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but then it was uh, Gabe Kaplan was doing it, and... Uh, Oh, I know Jimmy um, Walker. Jimmy Walker, yeah, was was uh, there. Was in New York too. And, yeah, and, and uh, so you know all that era. Yeah, well, that, that was the very beginning. Like, well, you know, Jimmy Walker was. He went out there, and then Bud opened the place in in uh, down on Melrose, like I mean, in seventy. You know what? I found that place for him. You did. It was the Ash Grove. Yeah, and there were the Pitchell Players I, who were. Um, an improv group, yeah. come down from San Francisco, bought the Ash Grove, and then it fa- it was failing, and I knew that. And we used to perform there with a credibility gap. Uh, Harry Shearer, Mike McKean, Dave Lander. Yeah. And they were great. And we'd perform at the uh, old Ash Grove, and then, but they were folding, and then I came out, Tom and I came out, and we were doing a gig in New York, or we're doing the improv in New York, and Bud said, do you know any place in L.A.? And I said, yeah, the old Ash Grove. They're selling that. And boom, it's that. No finder's fee, nothing. <laughs> he, probably, he probably doesn't even remember you telling him. He probably thought he found it himself. Him. Oh, you did. I reminded him. <laughs> so you're working there, and you've, you're dealing with Mitzi. You're dealing with that. Insanity. I get on at the improv anytime I want. Oh, good for you. That's nice. <laughs> Still, even, I you, think so. Yeah, yeah you, I haven't tried it. Yeah, grandfathered since, in since all the, since the Senate. I have not tried it. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> you, you can always go back. I know. I yeah. know. But oh, so, how long do you stay in L.A. and, and then that and then and what what takes you to the SNL? Uh, Tom and I are doing the clubs. Um, there Did was, you deal with Mitzi though? Did you deal? We with- deal, dealt with Mitzi. In fact, we were there for the strike. Right. Remember, no one got paid. Were anything. you there when Steve Lebit? Yeah, yeah. Boy, that was terrible. That's, that's taking comedy too seriously. Yeah, uh, jumping know. off the building. Yeah. You were there though during that the strike thing. Were you at meetings? Did you? Do I that did thing? not. Uh, by the strike, Tom and I had kind of moved on. Yeah. We started doing gigs at the Ice House. Sure. And other places, and also start, we got an agent in the Midwest and started doing colleges in the Midwest for five hundred a pop. That's good. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. We went around in our Volkswagen van. And, and how long was the act? The act was like uh, an hour, yeah, something like that. And uh, we really enjoyed doing it, and we were getting paid. We were getting paid, but it was some. We had some. Uh, uh, you know, these are weird, not weird gigs. They're just. Small colleges sure. in the Midwest. They still exist. Those gigs. Yeah, you can do you can do those again if you want. I, I uh, <laughs> you know, they were. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, but uh, you know, we moved moved on from that, and now I'm in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. When does the dead start coming into your life? Oh, right after we moved to L.A. from from Harvard uh, from Boston. That's when the, the the yeah. Well, Tom was a deadhead already, yeah. and Tom introduced me to the dead. And we just loved the dead. Yeah. And we just went to a lot of concerts. And But you really stuck with it. I mean, you stuck with the dead a long time. I'm still, I still, on my uh, 
uh, on our official car in Minnesota. I drive all around the state. Yeah. We have Sirius, and yeah. I listen to Sirius 23. I do, too. Yeah, you can hear, like, 90 versions of the same song. Yeah. In one day. <laughs> well, uh, but they have, like, an amazing repertoire of music, but you're oh, no, right. You no, no, hear... I know. I love the dead. I, You know, if you have a brain that can, uh, you know, connect with it, it's a, it's a real joy to have that. I was never uh, a serious <laughs> deadhead. It does sound like... No, 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 I'm true. It's true. I'm really, I... I I liked the dead when I was in high school a little bit, but I in college I had two roommates that were deadheads. Mm-hmm. I saw them in Worcester in 84, okay. uh, and I saw... Well, then you get it. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. okay. get it. Okay. I, I just watched a documentary. They sent me a screener that you're in. Oh, and I, yeah? I, I completely get it. I just never could commit to the full lifestyle. How am I in the documentary? Oh, you don't know you're in the documentary? No, I, no, I don't mean how am I in the documentary. <laughs> yeah. I meant how am I in the documentary. Oh, you're great. You're oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> they, it was it was actually a great beat. It's a sweet documentary, and it was. Uh, yeah, I, I find myself get very choked up about it, about not just the dead, but when I see what music was like then and, yeah. and the sort of community around it and, and what yeah. the world was like then. We're old guys. So, yeah. You know, you get sad thinking what it was like then. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I miss most of it. I mean, my primary years were the seventies and eighties. I thought you guys had the, the beautiful time, but yeah. Yeah, it was a rough time too, I guess. Probably a little more fun, but let's just talk about SNL. Fun. Uh, you, how, you, how do you get the gig? We submitted a writing sample. <laughs> That's how we got it. It was very odd. We were the only writers that got gigs that did that Lauren hadn't met. And we put together a writing sample, which was actually quite short, but it included the World War III uh, newscast. It included uh, a, a commercial parody or, or a, a sketch. I think it was a... It was, I think now that I remember, it was a, a, a parody of the Sonny and Cher show. Oh yeah, and uh, which was a really one of the few. I remember our our, our agent said, um, "I want you to write a writing sample, not for SNL or anything, just because we wanted to get jobs <laughs> yeah. as writers." And so there was no ex- the only existing shows, comedy variety shows at the time, were the Tonight Show, which we just weren't right for. Um, Carol Burnett show, which was a really good show, but we were generationally just wrong. And then Sonny and Cher, which was Drek. Yeah. And so I think we wrote a parody of that, but we said we're not, we, there's no show on the air that we want to write a sample for. Right. So we wrote for a show that we'd like to see. So this had a newscast, a, a, a commercial parody, a sketch, uh, and a film, little film piece that was in your package. Yeah. So you designed the show. It was that is almost exactly what SNL is, right? It. Uh, yeah. I mean, we. Um, and it was like fourteen pages long. It wasn't. It wasn't long at yeah. all. Yeah. There was an early point in the show where the show was popular and people would send in submissions and we'd actually read them. Yeah. And that, then. Very soon we stopped doing that because someone sued us because they had yeah, written a piece about the CIA and the CIA was in one of our pieces. And, and, <laughs> and we right. got sued and it was like, what? Okay, uh, can't read pieces. But people would like write really long things and say, and uh, you'd call them up and go, we're sorry, you know, we were looking for a distinctive voice or something. You'd, right. You'd be nice. <laughs> And they would go, I'll send more. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and we had a very short thing. Yeah. You have to pop, right? Right. Yeah. 
And you did. So and we we'll, did. We got the job. Uh, we wanted to perform. Uh, you meet with Lauren. What was Lauren like as a as a young man at that time when they were just starting the show? Uh, in some ways, the same. I mean, I remember the first time I met him, I just thanked him for the job. Yeah. Well, of course. You know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't do uh, Lauren yeah. as well as Dana or any of those guys. But he was... Uh, I think more hands-on in the writing in those days. Uh-huh. We had a long pre-production period, and Lauren's theory on that was that we would start writing stuff and a, a kind of a group sensibility would emerge. And right. we'd write out, uh, we'd get past the old stuff we were writing or something. I mean, pick people for having a unique voice, so Mike O'Donoghue was not going to start writing like, like Franklin and Davis. Right. But, also, what he did was he had worked on Laugh-In, and Laugh-In, the writers would be in a building somewhere off lot, and the material would go to the lot, and they'd do the show, and the writers had nothing to do with the production of the material, and at SNL, uh, what Lauren wanted was the writers to produce their own pieces, and that, I think, was uh, crucial uh, yeah. for uh, the way we all worked together, and of course, the cast wrote, like people like Danny wrote. And uh, also, it must have been a, a blast. It was really, really fun. It, like exciting and like you know the like, one thing people ask me the most is being a senator as much fun as working on Saturday Night Live, and the answer is no. <laughs> Why would it be? Uh, <laughs> you know, but being a senator is the best job. Uh, I've ever had, and I'll explain that when we get past the comedy. But when I say that, why would it be the the most people ask me also what was most the funniest thing or the moment you remember most from Saturday Night Live, and and the there isn't a moment, but what I remember the most is rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah, and it could have been uh, you know Danny coming up with a new character, Jim Downey writing a, a, a line or going on a riff. Or any of these people, uh, Gilda or uh, Zweibel or Smigel or Conan or all these people that I worked with. I worked on the show for 15 seasons. I worked yeah. for the first five, left for five. Uh, then I came back as a Lorne again writer and did those 10. And the, the quintessential moment of joy from that show was Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, rolling on the floor, laughing. And that is, there's nothing quite like that. Being around that many funny people who are consistently funny, who are always surprising, you're exhausted, and you've been going at it, and it's just hilarious. Unfortunately, we're not exhausted. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I used to say, because... You know, I write in the book pretty frankly about the fact that there were drugs, sure, <laughs> and that I did uh, I did acid at at Grateful Dead concerts. I smoked dope. I um, uh, snorted cocaine, but I only on those Tuesday night, Wednesday morning things. I only 
snorted enough cocaine so that I could stay awake to make sure that no one did too much cocaine. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. You were the. That I was being means responsible. You, well, you leaned towards codependency. You didn't <laughs> yeah. lean towards. I was very. I'm very codependent. Yeah. You didn't. You, you didn't go the other way. Yeah. yeah. Codependent yeah. at heart. Yes. Exactly. Well. Uh, well, this is an odd question because uh, you know there were people like you know R. Crumb and certainly Jerry and you watched this documentary and it really talked a lot about how you know acid you know re sort of configured how they looked at the world. Mm-hmm. Did you have any experience like that, where where you were like, well, this outside of just doing it, where you're like, oh, I see it all differently now. I don't think it gave me a, a whole new world view, but I know when I was when I was tripping, I had one, <laughs> but I don't remember it or something like that. All, I'm not sure. It all makes sense. I didn't sense. do it that much. Sure. It wasn't like my, but yeah. I would do it for dead concerts, and I remember doing a lot of thinking during the dead concerts. Yeah, and uh, I remember literally working out sketches. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, I'll go to the show and I'll write. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write in my head. So did, <laughs> I think that your, you and Tom's political stuff was very cutting, you know, and it, de- it definitely had a punch. It definitely had, yeah. you know, that, you know, you were you were speaking truth to power. Eh, yeah, we were doing satire. Okay. And we were yeah. funny and... Well, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Look, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm not going to overdo Thanks. it. Thank you. No, but there was the actual conflict, and you know the story that's in the in the oral history. You know about the Kissinger thing uh, that they, you know that uh, Kissinger wanted to come to the show. And, oh God, yeah. And uh, you know, and well, the Rolling Stones were doing the show, and he, I guess, wanted tickets for David. David, son. yeah, a TV executive. <laughs> uh, yeah, who became a TV executive. Yeah. And uh, I once met Kissinger years later, and and he was like uh, a dad because he was going like, well, David now is over at whatever he was wearing, yeah, Sony, yeah. and I'm wondering if he's if that's a good place for him. <laughs> like, wow, <laughs> he's just a dad wondering if that's his son- it, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Like, you know, because even in the book, you know, you talk about, you know, relationships with Sessions and, and, and Mitch McConnell. And sure. that And even when I talk to people, it's like, well, he's just a guy. Well, but Sessions' then, wife, uh, Jeff Sessions' wife, yeah. uh, knit a baby blanket <laughs> for my grandson, which is his favorite blanket, was his favorite blanket. He's moved on. Yeah. But, I mean, it's hard to hate the guy that but now i'm getting to work it up i mean and <laughs> you know i mean what what in the senate you sort of is you end up liking people you completely disagree with and um and you don't want to unfairly demonize someone who is uh you work with and is your friend uh on the other hand i was able to fairly demonize him <laughs> yeah. uh, in the in the hearings because i felt first of all in the hearings he hit uh, in the material he submitted he was asked to submit the 10 uh cases that he uh, was personally engaged in the most important uh cases he was personally engaged in and he submit and four of those were civil rights cases and he was not personally engaged in them so i kind of grilled him over that yeah and then it turns out also that he in answering a question that i asked he um misled the committee under oath about whether he had met with uh, the russians right 
and that and then he ultimately went on to recuse himself, but he's still got so, the job. Not only that, but he still weighed in on this uh, firing, yeah, of of Comey, which he should not have been involved in because he had recused himself, yeah, on the Russia investigation, and that's Comey. I think was involved in that, yeah, and um, I'm pretty sure that's why he got fired. You know, every day is an affront. Every day is a year. <laughs> every, every day is day. a year. Uh, yeah. So. So like, all right, so fine. No truth to power, just satire. Yeah, uh, you know, Kissinger. But, you, you know, ultimately... Oh, well, uh, Kissinger, I think the story that you're referring to, Kissinger called for tickets for his son and the, the uh, you know, the NBC switchboard operator called us up and said, we ha- I have Henry Kissinger on the phone. Yeah. And, or maybe it was someone from the news division. Yeah. And he wants tickets for his son for Saturday night. And I said, well, tell him if it weren't for the Christmas bombing, he'd have the tickets. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, I can't tell him that. Well, then, you know, tell him. And then I said something bad. Yeah. <laughs> he said something bad. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't get the tickets. <laughs> and, you know, he was, I guess, a... Some had some relationship, obviously, with NBC News. I, yeah. I was not a fan of his. Yeah, well, understandably. Yeah, but you do get do you get pushed out of Saturday Night Live at that point? When Lauren left, we all left, and we were you know, in a way, we were stupid, but in a way, we had done five years of the show. The fifth season was a little harder than other seasons because we lost both uh, Belushi and Aykroyd to do the Blues Brothers. And I think we were tired, as you get at the, especially at the end of the season. Yeah, you know when we get together, when they get together now uh, at the beginning of a season and during the end of the, at the end of the summer, you look the best you'll look all year. Yeah, and you get worse and worse all year. <laughs> yeah, by the end of the year, we just said, you know what? Yeah, that we did five years. It's good. And then uh, you never got update. Oh, and then we wandered in the wilderness for five, a few years, and then we came back. And the reason I finally left the show was after doing 15 seasons of the show, I sort of I wanted to do Update. Yeah. I wanted to be the Update anchor. All right. And in retrospect, they made the right decision because I had was wearing my liberal bias on my sleeve. Yeah. And with Downey, and I write about Downey as kind of the greatest political satire writer on the show and head writer for years head writer and also just a brilliant brilliant guy and a conservative he's a very thoughtful conservative and i like to think of myself as a thoughtful liberal thoughtful progressive and we wrote a lot together and we did not feel that the job of the show was to have a any political bias we thought the job of the show was to write satire that was smart and funny and uh jim had this thing which is uh reward people for knowing stuff but don't punish them for not so we're trying to write stuff that everyone could like but if you actually knew politics that maybe you could get a little bit more out of it and that you were those people that you rewarded would always come back yeah. and watch SNL because wow okay they referred to the Humphrey Hawkins bill or something you know right. and um so we did not we felt like there're just too many people on the show uh and also i think Lauren felt this way uh that the satire on the show should not be i mean obviously most people on the show has your kind of 
typical New York Hollywood liberal bias, but that was not the job of the show. Murphy Brown could do that. Diane English created that show. Uh, you know, Candace Bergen was Murphy Brown. They could have a liberal bias. They could do what they wanted to do. That was the nature of that show. We just had too many people working on the show to represent everybody's political views. So we were kind of studiously, and, and Jim and I would check each other. We, we would keep each other honest. Well, it seems like that, that motto is helpful in politics as well. You can take a drink of water. Okay. Here. You're going to get it? Sure. <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out. <laughs> no, will we? No. Uh, where, where were we? I, I just thought well, that. I wanted to just uh, talk about update. Uh, by the time 95 came around, I had done stuff outside the show. Wrote that, some movies? Uh, yeah, yeah. But my the political stuff I had done really showed that I had a liberal bias. And uh, so I didn't get update and went to Norm McDonald. And I think that was the right decision and i thought norm was very very funny yeah on update and um but i was miffed and i don't know if you know what that's like to be upset and angry and feel uh uh you know fucked over yeah i don't yeah. know if you know no i have no experience with that bitterness okay. well let me tell you entitlement what like <laughs> <laughs> anyway so uh, and I was miffed and I, I just I left the show and it was, you know, it was hard to leave the show. The show was a very safe place. It was a very exciting place to work. Um, right. so, so I know exactly what you're talking about. You mean uh, feeling like you were pushed off the air by a, uh, 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 a, a sort of know nothing CEO like I was in Air America? Yeah, I know that feeling. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I no, that's, no, no. I, I didn't feel that way at all. You sound, <laughs> actually, I, I I never became bitter. No. But it sounds like you might have. For a while. I'm, you know, I, I, I got through it. You know, I, I, I worked through it, and I, I found Well, you know what I think they terms. probably felt at, a, at uh, Air America is that you weren't good in the audio medium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had real insight on that. Good, good foresight yeah, on never that. Never work in that yeah. medium. So you you didn't get bitter though. You just no. It, it actually uh, I didn't, uh, and I owed too much to the show. First of all, and secondly, um, yeah, I, I I didn't really. I for it it, it lasted like a week. You and know? again, you can. There's always an, a, a time. It might happen. It could still happen. Get update? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's my dream. You know, George Burns worked till he was 100. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I can ser serve. And he was a pretty funny, too. Terms sure. Here. He yeah. was funny all, all the way. way through. All the way. Um, do you talk to Lauren? Yeah. 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 I'll see him, I think, um, in a couple of weeks. Do you ever talk about uh, uh, his decision to put Trump on during the campaign? I did not talk to him about that. Yeah. I think I talked to him maybe about. Wow, that was a bad show. Yeah, <laughs> I may have talked about that, but you guys are still close and your friends. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So now let's do the politics thing because, like, the one thing I, I love about the book is that you know I, you, you don't pay short shrift to the comedy, but you know when you get into the politics thing, someone could read this book and and be inspired to get into politics. Like you I know, hope so. you, I, I, it feels like that. Like you, you really go through the the, the process of 
of deciding, of campaigning, of of learning, and and and, yeah. and and the tasks of it. But it doesn't sound, even though you make jokes about it, it, it seems like you're fully engaged in all of it, even the bad parts, and that it seems like something people should and could do. Well, if they want to, and there's different ways to do it. You don't have to run for the Senate. You can get involved in other ways. You can go to a town hall meeting and ask your absolutely yeah, just yeah, a little bit just get involved Go, yeah voted for this unbelievably bad health care bill or or you can do a million things you can be an advocate uh for any you know if you care about mental health if you care about climate change if you care about housing if you care there's there's a million things to do and they make a difference to us in the senate when advocates come and and lobby you it makes it makes a big difference and it's also something you can do that that you can also do your other life too i mean you can be involved in politics i think a lot of people detach from it because they don't see how it plays into their life or they don't have time but it it seems like you can be relatively active and still have a job and stuff yeah yeah you can do that and i i actually when i was a comedian did I mean, the easiest way for me to help was to campaign for somebody, yeah. uh, and and usually that was fundraisers, but sometimes just campaigning. That was Paul Wellstone. I did that the most for Paul, and Paul was uh, this very, very dy- uh, dynamic, uh, very progressive senator from Minnesota um, who died in uh, in a plane crash right before the uh, two thousand two election like 11 days before it's horrible and that's and it's his seat that i ran for in 2008 and was he i, I know that you, you speak about him a lot as a friend and as a inspiration and as you know a personal hero politically but had you decided to to pursue politics you know before that relationship became no ne- no no um i you know i was in comedy and i did not never considered running uh until Paul had uh, Paul died, and Norm Coleman, who um, then went on to get elected eleven days later, uh, uh, gave a interview to Roll Call. It was the first profile of him uh, as a senator uh, less than six months after Paul died, and he said, "To be blunt, I'm a ninety nine percent improvement over Paul Wellstone." And I read that. Uh, and I was working on lies and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right at that time, and my reaction was, hmm, I wonder who's going to run against him. And uh, it some, really is that there was no anger in the hmm. <laughs> there was it was different language in the it was it was a thought. I was alone, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, there was the, the thought had different language. Yeah. In it. Um. So who's going to run against that yeah. jerk? Right. Except it probably wasn't. Sure. That. So that's when I, re- you know, and I realized that, look, um, like I'm going to be an empty nester next year. My um, my son was graduating high school and Franny, I can move back to Minnesota. And I got this radio gig, this Air America thing. Oh, yeah. What happened to that? Well, uh, uh, it was underfinanced, and I think that the uh, people who made some of the decisions made some wrong decisions. Uh-huh. Several. Yeah. Yeah. We had Jerry Springer as a host. Yeah, I that remember. That was probably the low point, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I had wanted a very different thing. I was kind of the flagship show, I'd, I'd say. And we had some very, very good people. Um, you know, Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. was, on, uh, was a host, and... 
uh, you know, Janine Garofalo. And we, we had some very good, but I wanted to do sort of a, uh, a little bit of like an NPR, but that, that said we're progressive. So I like wanted Robert Reich to do an hour business show every day, like marketplace, but right. do a, a progressive business right. show. That's yeah. what I kind of wanted. But it became very apparent very early that they, first of all, didn't have really the finances to do what they wanted to do. Um, we had a crisis like right out of the gate. It was insane. I was yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I just did my show. Right. And I did my show and I um, stayed out of. Did you know you were going to go run for Senate when he started Air America? I thought I might. Yeah. I thought I might because that was post reading the Coleman thing. And yeah. that's why I moved the show back to Minnesota at a certain point. And I really went back to Minnesota with the intention of, I went back early enough to be able to uh, go around the state, uh, go to bean feeds, and that's sort of the organizing uh way the uh, DFL Democratic Farmer Labor Party does things in Minnesota we have bean feeds and they can be burger bashes or uh, walleye fries or something like that and to see if I liked it to see if I liked actually doing politics and uh, I had a couple years to to see that and whether I was good at it you mean meeting the people hearing the people just meeting people and hearing what they were thinking and uh and trying, I was watching Amy Klobuchar run for the first time for the Senate, and watching her. She was that's in 2006. She ran and won, and uh, she went. If I, she went to pretty much every uh, bean feed or burger bash or spaghetti dinner. And if she wasn't there, her husband and daughter were there. And if they weren't there, her father was there, who was a beloved columnist for the Star Tribune. And if none of them were there, I'd be going like, "Am I in the wrong place?" You know. Yeah. Uh, and but I, um, I, I caught the bug. I really liked it, and uh, it, it because I was speaking at these things, uh, they got more people to show up, which helped the party. And very often, these are fundraisers. And well, I noticed in the book that you, you know there there this transition from being you know a performer from being a guy. You know, we want to be liked. We like getting the laugh. And, you know, as progressive as any of us might be, that the, I imagine that the 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 depth of your empathy, which I'm, I'm sure you have, obviously, any anyways, and also the the sense of, of justice that when you start meeting constituents, you know, on a personal level, because you, you're you know, you, you you share some personal stories in there that I mean I think the real shift of of one's heart into really committing to politics has to be some moment where you realize that these are individuals you know with real problems that are that 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 should be you know somehow uh you know dealt with well I kind of realized that already doing the radio show of course I was talking about these issues yeah and so I would have Elizabeth uh, Warren on to talk about middle class squeeze. Right, I have right. Atul Gawande who writes well, uh, but but being with healthcare. the people. But the difference is, you know, you can hear Elizabeth Warren say half the bankruptcies in America are caused by a healthcare crisis. Yeah, it's different when you meet somebody who and and going around Minnesota at that time, any cafe I'd go to or VFW, there there'd be 
a on on a bulletin board there'd be a thing for a, a fundraiser for someone who had gotten sick and didn't have insurance right. or their insurance or actually had gone through their cap and uh so it was very different here seeing that and hearing that from from people yeah and um so I was just got more and more motivated to do the job. Yeah. And um, it's funny. When I first got back, I one of the first people I met with was uh, Jeff Blodgett, who had been Paul Wellstone's uh, campaign manager for all his campaigns. And he said to me, well, as an exercise, you should write like a five-minute speech that has no jokes in it. <laughs> and I went why would you do that <laughs> you know I, yeah. I like i uh and then that's uh he was right of course but i was still a comedian and when in 2006 when i was going around the bean feeds i was still you know you were I, was doing still, it. I was still being funny killing <laughs> yeah but I didn't realize that should have been a, a signal to me that oh the comedy is going to be a problem um a a bit and it's not i learned to uh you know dehumorize my own material <laughs> yeah. but but they uh put everything i'd ever said over 40 years of comedy through they meaning the republicans yeah. and and my opponent norm coleman through the dehumorizer yeah. which was a, a 15 million dollar machine <laughs> built with soviet old soviet technology <laughs> to take the humor out of every, every joke i'd ever told and uh, and try to indict you with it as being yeah uh, you know and if you take it's satire so a lot of it uses irony yeah or hyperbole right uh and uh when you rob something of its context it can look pretty bad and they did that that's yeah. what they did and that was sort of the theme of the campaign against me yeah and then you talk about it that you know sort of you know figuring out how to counter that that you know there was a moment where to to uh to diminish their power over that that you realize you thought it was a liability initially to to be having gone to harvard and then then at some point you realize like we did when, a focus group yeah and uh in the focus group we found out that no one thought being a comedian meant you were smart at right. all <laughs> <laughs> being a successful comedian not smart <laughs> or you're not smart uh i went to harvard he must be smart yeah he must be smart <laughs> enough to do government work and yeah. so that was you know uh really weird uh <laughs> that it was kind of the first time they realized that i thought i'd have to hide the fact that i went to harvard in a way or at least play it down as much as right. possible it turned out the exact opposite was the case and also it shows that people don't really know what goes in to making comedy like that, and that's still the truth. Well, I had, I won't say who the senator is, but yeah. um, uh, the first time I got this up to speak in caucus, Harry Reid, this I was just there for a couple weeks, and Harry said, uh, Al, I want you to get up and tell about who you are. Yeah. So I spoke for about 10 minutes, and I got laughs, and I got applause, and I got a standing ovation, and I went to my table and I was sit where I'd been sitting next to a, a senator who was quite senior. And the senator said to me, you know, when when you first got here, I thought you were going to be stupid. <laughs> and I said, why? And and the senator said, because you're a comedian. 
And I said, actually, comedians are really smart. And and the senator said, I think that, uh, no, they're really, I think the stuff they talk about is really dumb. It's really stupid. And I went, ah, okay, forget it. You know, I'm not going to argue this one. Fine. But there, there are moments you, 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 you talk about in the book with senators that we know who, you know, once you, like they told the Broderick Crawford story. Oh, yeah. With, with uh, yeah. who was there? Uh, Sessions. It was, and- this was uh, the, five days after I got there, we started the Sotomayor hearings. Mm-hmm. And um, one, during one of the questionings, uh, or she she said that she become a she had become a prosecutor because of the Perry Mason show. Yeah, and so I asked her. I said, "Why did you become a prosecutor? Watching a show where the prosecutor lost every case?" And she said, "Well, actually, Perry Mason lost one case." And I said, "What was it?" And she said, "I I don't know." And I said, "Didn't the White House prepare you?" Which is they're supposed to be prepared. And, it got, <laughs> and then that got a laugh, which I. That had repercussions, which were stupid. With people, <laughs> why did he do a joke? You know, and, right. and, and, but right after that questioning, we went into this uh, this, this closed uh, hearing on her um, uh, the FBI ba- background check, yeah. and that that now we do every time because when when they did it on Clarence Thomas, it tipped off everybody that he, there was a problem. So we, these are just perfunctory now. So we go in there, and the internet just went nuts on Perry Mason and what case he had lost. And uh, so we walk into this uh, the, our normal hearing room. We're in a bigger hearing room for the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings. And Tom Coburn, who from Oklahoma, comes in. He goes, "Actually, Perry Mason lost two cases." <laughs> and then uh, Sessions goes, "You know what I liked." Dragnet. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Cornyn, uh, John Cornyn of Texas goes, uh, I liked Highway Patrol. And I said, you know, I worked with Broderick Crawford. Now, these guys don't know me. And I felt sort of a little like the new kid at school in the yeah, lunch line. Right. And so I, I said, I worked with Broderick Crawford. Broderick Crawford was a star of Highway Patrol. Yeah. But he also won the Oscar for All the King's Men. He was this great tough guy actor. Every all the Republicans, everybody kind of turns to me like, "You worked with Broderick Crawford?" I go, "Yeah, he hosted the show," and then I tell a story about that, and everyone's going like, "You really were in show business?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I go, "Yeah, yeah," and uh, so that was like my bonding moment uh, with the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. Anyway. Yeah, it was funny because even now. Uh, like that that moment with uh, with Perry during his hearings with the, the couch moment. Yes, that there was a moment where you had to fight making the easy joke. Sure, he threw you a fucking softball. Um, now I'm being self conscious about saying fuck on my own show. On he, your own show, yeah, I know that's funny. I yeah, did that to you. You did. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. And uh, <laughs> and you had to just write it out. I did. But the, but the timing of writing it out turned out to be just as funny. Well, yeah. Then you learned some timing. Yeah. No, what he had said was we had actually had Perry surprise me. He's a very charming guy. Yeah. And actually, he had been governor for the longest of any governor in texas history and he knew a lot about how to pull levers and right and, and as a uh, as a governor 
and governors tend to have to do real stuff and so uh we had a really good time <laughs> and he was sitting in a chair and like you are now and i was sitting on a couch like i am now uh-huh. and we had a really good time uh in our our uh our, our meeting the before you know our um before the hearings we met in my office and so he just said to me uh i, I actually said to him like uh it was nice meeting you did you enjoy meeting me yeah which no one says, but I got yeah. a little laugh on that. And, right. and uh, he said, well, I hope you're as much fun at the dais there as you were yesterday on the couch. <laughs> and um, I did a pause and they got a laugh. I mean, it yeah. was stupid what he said. Right. <laughs> and then he caught himself. And then he kind of caught himself, and um, so I, he, he said, can I rephrase that? And I said, oh, dear Lord, please. Yeah, yeah something like it's that. It's funny. Yeah, well, this is the weird thing about it is, like, even when you're talking about it, and even when Brendan and I are, you know, going over, you know, whatever happened overnight or in the last few hours in the morning yeah, with this president, and... Uh, well, this is really, you know, all all kidding aside... This is a very, very disturbing, yeah, serious time, right? And and he gets to in the so point. many ways, and it's hurting so many people. This health care bill, incredibly awful. Um, it is. Uh, I've go- gone around Minnesota when this the first iteration of this bill came out, um, that was scored as you know twenty four million people losing their health care, but also uh, cutting $880 billion from Medicaid would be devastating. And I went to rural hospitals and nursing homes and people crying at what the effect would be. Uh, a health care provider saying my mom gets her home health care through Medicaid. And if this goes through, she will lose that. And both my husband and I work. I don't know what we will do. And uh, there is, you know, a story after story like this is terrible what they've done. And, of course, it was to give a $900 billion tax cut to people at the top. People who earned $250,000 a year or more would get this huge tax cut. But all this stuff across the board. Like everything they're doing, you know, cutting everything, deregulating everything. Oh, well, on, like on climate, just, uh, you know, every, Pruitt. Yeah. I mean, the, the uh, some of these nominations for cabinet posts were just bizarro nominations, like the opposite person. Well, that's, that was Bannon, though, right? That was Bannon doing what he wanted to do, which is to de- I think de- it was, destroy I think the it government. Was, I think it was also Pence. Um, he was in charge of the transition. So I think a lot of those people are people that Pence had worked with. Mulvaney, the last person you'd want <laughs> at, anyway. uh, at, uh, <laughs> at OMB, uh, which is the budget office, uh, it w- was a Freedom Caucus guy. And Pence, is, Pence has an ideology. Uh, Trump doesn't. Trump is about Trump. And so Pence is about this kind of Tea Party, right? So now all these relationships that you, you know, built in the Senate, or that you see these guys every day, and these are guys you've had a laugh with, you've socialized with the uh, with with Mitch McConnell, and you, you know, whatever. no, I haven't. I oh. mean, I've socialized with them only to the extent of their 
is a uh, a spouse dinner right. every year. But, but I mean, I don't. I say that I social. I, I said I'm not going to write cliches right. in this thing. Like uh, even though Mitch and I disagree with each other all the time, after a day in the Senate debating each other, we go to dinner. And he laughs so hard that milk shoots yeah, out his nose. That was a joke. That was a joke. I don't social. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I see your frustration, you know, when you, you, you talk publicly. And obviously that this polarization thing and, and you speak a little bit in the book about how there, there, there are two conceptions about, you know, what America should be and, and how it should run. But then there's crazy and then there's evil. Right. Yeah, so, that's pretty fair. And, and you're a guy that that you're, you're, you're diplomatic. You, you like to be liked. You have a, a codependent streak in you that, you, you know, that. Thank could, you. That, well, no, that no, no, it <laughs> no. could be used. To, there's good. No, no, no. I mean, I talk about going to Al-Anon, which is for. The no, but I mean, there's without, a good part yeah. of it. There, there's a good part of it. Uh, I guess so. I mean, you have to. It, it is if you're aware of it. And right. Or, right. But, uh-huh. you know, because it does make you connect with people. Anyway. I think so. Yeah, I, I guess so. So uh, what do we do, man? I mean, what you know, what- well, I'm working as hard as I can. I mean, uh, uh, for your listeners, as we talked a little bit earlier, there are a whole bunch of things to do. And right. these marches mean mean a lot that mar- the women's march the day after uh, was it was uh, very, very important. And they continued going to these town halls. Uh, very important, but also just working on issues that mean a lot to you, whether it's the, the clean water or, you know, whether it it, it is, uh, you know, mental health is something that I've been working on since I got here and I've had some achievements that mean, mean a lot to me. Any kind of issue that you really care about, and when I've brought this up to audiences and, uh, around Minnesota, there's no limit to how many things people really care about and they they respond to that and i i I, it's it's you may be in in an advocacy group and be a foot soldier but it's not long before you become an officer and and, right and uh become an important part of it i guess like you know i i remember at the beginning uh when when it first happened the event of him becoming president that the election, you know, yeah. the election then when he took office and all that you know weird kind of uh, fascist theater that was going on that speech was Amer- <sighs> the american carnage speech yeah. was i mean i uh um that was a you know it was the inauguration of donald trump so it was a tough day for me but at least i got to be kind of far enough away and behind him that i couldn't yeah Going to the State of the Union address or the joint, that was hard because I was like 15 feet from him and I'm in that chamber. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the whole government is there. The Speaker of the House and the Vice President are behind the President and all the cabinet is there and, except one. And the uh, Supreme Court's there and the Joint Chiefs are there and every member of Congress is there. And when Obama would do these events, I really felt like I was, I felt moved by the whole thing because of this, this really smart, thoughtful, dignified, <laughs> uh, heavy duty president. And then the, this year sitting there with Trump there, I really thought I was an 8-H. 
and he was just we were just doing a doing sketch a bit, yeah he was a sketch and um i i just felt the whole office in a way has been cheapened sure and we see it every day every day there's a new yeah. affront and then every day after that we're seeing that the story they put out was wrong and uh, and we just lie after lie after lie after lie and um so that all of that is uh just upsetting to me as an american and then i'm but i'm got a role to play i'm one of 48 in the senate and you're doing a great job well no i mean I, you're 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 speaking up you're taking people to task you're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in a very uh 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 focused uh, 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 I, I think that the the actual showbiz training yeah. has helped. Oh yeah, you know I'm on the judiciary committee. I'm one of the few people on the judiciary judiciary committee who's not a lawyer, but I can frame things, and I I, I think I got I think I learned stuff from doing comedy. I think in comedy comedians are good editors because mm-hmm. you realize what works, what doesn't work, and you realize what you have to take out right and so it uh, lands so it lands yeah so it lands and i have a lot of people and colleagues coming to me like your stuff lands they don't say lands but (laughs) 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 Uh, but and and i think it has to do with uh having done done stand-up okay well then two questions so you know, Obama talked about this too, about incremental change. You know, you know, any progress on on some level is good progress. So now we're in a time that you know is is not only doesn't seem to be progressing, but is you know taking us back. Yeah, do or you, attempting to? And, well, yeah, but in some cases taking us back. Yeah, do but you this see healthcare it? thing would, would take horrible. us back? It would it would be horrible. Now we'll see what comes out of the Senate, we've been asking. We just had a, a hearing yesterday in which all of the Democrats were basically asking Lamar Alexander, the chairman of the committee, whom I respect, to have us be dealing with with health care, have hearings, do this process the way it was done in 2009, do that instead of to have this 12-man, literally 12-man um committee meet behind closed doors and come out with something we we need to have public hearings we need to do this in the right way are they gonna i don't know um i don't know i i think that it's so logical that we should do that and it it sort of depends on mitch mcconnell who i say one or two nice things about him because they're one or two nice things to say about him <laughs> but um he's kind of uh, a little cynical and if he thinks that this is uh the way he should go and he can get away with it that's what he's going to do so you're you, what you can do and what you're doing is is chipping away trying to make the senate work in a bipartisan way around these things that you may not agree with obviously but it still needs to work uh, yeah, and does, do you have any? I think in the book I kind of make the case for actually trying to make progress all the time, and and now this is going to be a period where we're fighting, yeah, uh, bad things from happening as well. Right, and do do you, are there? Do you have any? Do you have hope or just persistence? 
Both, uh, both. I have, uh, you know, but sometimes I, I get a little down on what's going on because it is, uh, you know, I just think the presidency here has been devalued in a way. Yeah. Uh, that is, um, is, is a real shame. And it's been devalued so much that people talk about me running for president. And, uh, do, you, do you feel like it? No, no. <laughs> but I mean, it's been like, oh, I see an entertainer can be who had no experience, you know. And I like, no, you, never, no. you never think about it? No. Oh. You don't want the job. Too big a deal. It's, it's, uh, I like being senator. I like doing that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I don't want a Peter Principle myself <laughs> into, <laughs> you know. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Codependent president. <laughs> <laughs> so that I mean, but that's uh, that's not a that's not a bad thing. You know, if you can feel everybody's pain, it's, it's been done I, before. Look, if yeah. you compare it to the guy now, you I go like I'd be, you know, yeah, yeah. What, what can you say? You we'll know, see I, what happens. It's a long way off, but I do know this: that uh, I uh, th- this job when yeah. you get stuff done, and I've gotten stuff done on. On mental health, on healthcare, on uh, you know, on energy, on uh, mergers, media mergers, uh, fighting back against media uh, consolidation of uh, people. Ask me if I'm gonna, you know, if I'm gonna be asked to come back and host SNL. The Comcast people aren't thrilled with me. <laughs> <laughs> They'll put a stop to it. You know, I, I asked uh, Lauren, and I said, well, okay, I'm going to be in New York on the 20th, and that's the last show. And the last show, they have this big party, end of the year party. And I said, is it okay if I go to that? And he goes, as long as you don't yell at Brian Roberts. Who's had a Comcast? <laughs> I go, okay, if he doesn't yell at me, I've got to check back in with you to see how that goes. <laughs> Thanks for talking, Senator Franken. Well, uh, I'm really honored to be on the show. I mean, it or on the podcast rather. Well, uh, thanks, uh, and thanks for doing it. I knew it had to be a Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. <laughs> Right, because that's what it that. yeah. that's what it stands for. Yeah. Yeah, and I just I'm glad we were able to make that happen. Yeah. All right. That was the uh, funny and uh and engaged and uh um and very active a believer in democracy, uh who's doing his job and loves his job as a United States senator, Al Franken. I hope you enjoyed that. I am, am looking forward to some time off. Uh, you know, after this stint in New York, I'm going to be taking the summer to, uh, you know, work at some stand-up at my own pace and to do uh, the podcast, but just to, to sort of uh, not lay low, just to figure out, you know, who I am and where I stand and what I need to be doing to, uh, to move things in the correct direction. A little soul-searching. It's going to be a soul-searching summer. No guitar today. I hope you're okay with that. All right? Fight the good fight. Get involved. Boomer lives!